Okay, I know I tend to be a long-winded, <laughs> but I'm actually going to be brief because I've done like 30 hours of teaching this week, <laughs> and so I feel slightly hoarse, and I feel like I've used all my words. Um, I think, don't they say women have like X amount of words to use in a day, and if they don't use them all, I literally would finish like at like noon, one o'clock, and literally when it would be time to go out to lunch or dinner with people, I'd literally just sit there, and I'd, call, I'd text my husband and be like, I've used all my words. I just, like, can't talk to anybody anymore. Um, but anyway, it's good to be back. So minor logistics. So we're in the Mount Vernon room right now. Next week, we'll actually be in the George Washington room, which is where we'll be weekly. Um, and it's going to be lovely because when we're in that room, there's a room very, very close. It's, like, right next door where the children will be. So this is kind of a... Um, different setup this week and it, uh, throughout like our contract with the hotel it only happens like two times throughout the year so just an fyi don't come to this room next week we won't be here um okay so is there any of the logistics babe nope that's it we're good okay um okay so we're actually going to start a new series and the series that we're going to be starting and focusing on is awakened um, and where we're actually going to begin in this ser series is awakened to our identity in Christ. And then it, next week, we're going to move through awakened to the love of God, understanding his love for us. We're going to move through awakened through, to the spirit of truth. Basically, we're going to move throughout the word of God and understanding what it is to have our hearts and our minds awakened to different elements of truth. But first and foremost, I'll say, I don't want to, we all know my exaggerating dramatic nature. So I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I do really feel like this week, which we all know, I say this about every message I preach, this message is the most fundamental message, don't I? Isn't it true? We did Book of Acts, every chapter, every chapter we'd start out, I'd be like, this chapter is the most life-changing chapter. And then the next week, it would be the same thing. So that's just me. Take, take it or leave it. <laughs> But when I, the reason that I say this, though, is if you think about it, our identity in Christ is such a fundamental thing. And I am going to say, coming from the charismatic movement, I don't know how many of you guys were raised in the charismatic movement. When you hear something like your identity in Christ, it's, it's not like, I'm going to preach on the prophets of God and Elisha at Mount Carmel. Woo, exciting. I'm not going to preach on the fire of God. I can remember whenever I would hear a teacher preach on something like their, our identity in Christ, I'd almost like want to yawn and be like, that is so fundamental. I'm a child of God. I'm loved. Okay, I get it, right? Elementary. Actually, it is extremely elementary, <laughs> but it is so foundational But it, that in all honesty, unless that foundational block is clear, Unless that foundational block is secure, unless that foundational block is truly according to the word of God and not our own perceptions, our own experiences, or what other people have translated to us, it definitely even affects, number one, the way, not only how we view ourselves, but how we view God, how we view others. I've even seen people that have been in ministry for 20 years fall into major places of sin or other things. And when you walk them through counseling and when you begin to probe and identify and look at and kind of go, what happened to 20 years of knowledge? What happened to 20 years of studying the word? What happened to 20 years of experience in Jesus Christ? Ultimately, what you come back to is this issue of identity. 
I know that might sound very, very overly simplistic, but think about it this way. Each and every single one of us in in this room, we identify ourselves a certain way. And for some of us, it might be very known and very articulated and very clear. And for some of us, you might actually be like, well, I don't feel like I identify myself in a particular way. You identify yourself according to a specific social class. You identify yourself even according probably, some of us in the room, according to different intellectual classes. We identify in areas of fashion. Um, Where's our guy, uh, Will? Will recently has been talking about hipsters. I don't know what a hipster actually is. But (laughs) you think about it, you, you have a certain sense of style. You can actually identify when you're walking down the street if it's somebody that you feel like you would relate to because you can identify with the way that they're dressed. You think about that. You, uh, for young women, you're walking down the street and you actually see another young woman that you like her earrings, you like her clothing. You're like, I, I could, I do that with young moms. Some young moms at playgroups, I walk in and go, well, we're not going to be able to really relate. You know, not, I mean, just because they have their coach pa- bag, they, you know, they a- obviously have great affluence and I don't, you know, like, or things like that, that you, uh, you can identify of where you are in almost other people. We kind of label And 99.9% of the time, we actually identify ourselves and our identity is rooted in external things. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm a pastor. I lead a house of prayer. I'm a Christian. You know, I'm not going to put it in your category, but for some of you, it's I'm a student. I'm a professional. I'm a, you have ways that you label and you identify yourself. Some of them, you may not even think that they're external but even in the sense of kind of you, you mark your personality as I'm outgoing, I'm shy. It all, really, all of those things are ways that we are portrayed, ways that we are viewed, ways that others view us, ways that we view ourselves. And a lot of life, actually, we are living on such an external reality rather than an internal reality. And this is ultimately what it comes down to, our our identity in Christ, is that as long as we're living from an external reality, an external sphere, and not from an internal reality, we are forever going to be frustrated, confused, dissatisfied. I mean, even in good things. I'm not talking about bad things, and I'm not even talking about sin. When I say about our identity and what we identify ourselves, if a woman her entire life identifies herself and her identity is in being a mom or being in a spouse, there is going to come a point in time where you recognize I've lived and sowed all of my life in one direction, and I'm left feeling empty or frustrated or it didn't amount. Some of us pursue careers thinking that we're going to have a certain status in life, or if I just get this job, if I just end up doing this. It's, it's really thinking that if we attain to and acquire a certain position, that we'll have some amount of satisfaction and gratification. But in all honesty, throughout our lives, what we find is anywhere where we find our identity outside of the inward internal reality of our identity in Christ, we will be left frustrated, confused, and at at the very, very least, searching for something different, something else to fulfill, something else to uh, satisfy us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Word of God and this reality of external versus internal, this understanding of, and you could even use it this way, spiritual versus natural. 
I actually, I don't know if Will's in the room, but he actually had a picture that he was going to, I think he's gone from the room, which is fine. When he comes back, just tell him I need the picture. Huh? It's on his. It's fine. It's fine. So there's two realities, and basically this is a visual because I'm a visual person. There's two realities. It's the spiritual and the natural, and we're forever living from one of those places. So if you just envision... (laughs) That's great. No. If you envision a line, and there's literally a visible line, and that above the line is what is eternal. That means it lasts forever. It's what is spiritual. And below the line is what is natural. It's what we see. It's what we feel. It's, you know, what we can all perceive with our natural eye. It's things that are temporal, things that are upon this earth, things that are fading, things that um, are actually have time limits upon them, whereas in the realm of eternity, there is no time limit upon it. So if you actually envision this distinction of a line and that above it is eternal and it's spiritual and below it is natural and, it, and it's, uh, it's really temporal is what it is. So you have these two elements and the understanding that we actually, I, this is the frightening thing, we identify ourselves 99% of the time below the line according to natural means and not based upon what is eternal. And we're actually going to find that as we look through the word of God. So number one, most of us in this room, and if you don't know this as a given truth, I'll give you the gospel in two seconds or less, most of us in this room, we would all agree and we would all consent that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus came, he became a man, he, be, he came from the eternal, the supernatural, and he confined himself into a physical body, a physical man, upon the earth and realm, so that he was a, saver, a savior to save us from our sins. So would we all agree that Jesus Christ he came into the earthen realm to deliver each one of us as individuals from individual sin. Yes. Now, let's think about this for a second. Number one, what you just consented to and agreed to is completely supernatural. There is no element of the natural involved with that whatsoever. Even, even the simple fact that, it, yes, it was a physical cross, And yes, it was a physical man. And yes, there was physical blood. Yes, that was in the natural. But what transpired, the fact that we all agree that the human race can be saved and forgiven from sin because of that act is completely supernatural. And I would venture to say that probably everybody in this room, to some degree or another, agrees that the blood of Jesus Christ forgives us of our sin. So there you are. That belief system, it's above the line. It's completely above the line. It can't be measured in human terms. Because if you were to sit down and go, well, how does a guy 2,000 years ago, like you can't quantitate it in your mind. Like you cannot bring it together. So it's completely spiritual. So you're above the line in that belief system. But now let me ask you a question. So you start out spiritual. So we get saved. Now, this is the kind of the crisis in Christianity right here. Right here is our crisis. We get saved, and it's completely supernatural that we're forgiven of our sins. And what most people feel as though is once I'm saved, okay, all of my past, Jesus cleansed. That's supernatural. Now that I'm saved, 
I somehow got to figure out how to live the Christian life. And our limitation in understanding the gospel has been, so I'm going to sin. And when I sin, I just ask him for forgiveness of sin because the blood of Jesus is strong enough to forgive me of my sin. Would we all agree upon that? But this is actually where the crisis begins right here. It's, it's what we have just articulated, number one, is salvation is completely supernatural. It's supernatural. But then when we somehow think that the God of heaven and earth invaded our life, he wiped away all of our sin, we're now saved. We're under the blood of Jesus. Sin is forgiven. It's no longer accounted to us to be sinners and debtors. Supernatural. But somehow we think that then Jesus took his hands off and went, now try to figure out that Christian life. Most Christians, I'm going to be honest with you, and this is where hope and despair, I mean hopelessness and despair comes in oftentimes with the church. It's because what they feel like is, okay, I was forgiven, but now I have an awareness of right and wrong. Now I have an awareness of what is truth and what is a lie. Now I have an awareness of sin and that I'm not created to sin. There's this awareness, and a lot of people in their Christian life, when they feel defeated and when they feel overcome, when they live in that place of constantly feeling like, I know Jesus forgives me of my sin, but I feel like I'm a perpetual sinner. Most people come to a place of actually feeling like it would be better for me if I was lost, because when I was lost, I was supposed to sin. When I was lost, I didn't know any better. When I was lost, there was almost no condemnation in it because a lost person is supposed to sin. But now I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm called to righteousness, but yet I can't get the Christian deal. Most oftentimes people gather in churches, prayer meetings, all of those things, and it's, there's the, the cloak of shame that rests upon them because they feel as though they look at the word of God and they know what they're supposed to be, but yet they can't be it. I can never get there. I can never do enough. I can never be enough. I can never, it's, it's really, it's the vice of performance that ends up happening. And it's really from a sincere place because we want to please God and we want to do what's right. It's not from a bad place, but really, I'm going to tell you what it is, though. That vice and that yoke and that burden that comes upon Christians is because they've only understood 50% of the gospel. It's exactly where Paul says, is that you started in the spirit. You started in the spirit, the, the, the very fact that you are saved and that you say that you're a believer is because you trusted, you were above the line. You perceived the supernatural, you perceived that which is spiritual, you embraced the eternal, that you were forgiven of your sin. But then what you did is you went below the line. And you went, somehow I got to work this out. I got to slug this out. I got to work harder. I got to discipline myself. I have to resist the devil. You know, it's, somehow we're in that place of now it's my job to work out my salvation. And yes, there are the passages of scripture that say work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. But I'm going to tell you something. First and foremost, none of us can ever live the Christian life successfully or according to even what the word of God portrays unless we have an understanding and a clear understanding of salvation, 
of actually what did happen to you at salvation. Was just simply your past forgiven, and then you were kind of plopped in the middle of the universe, and you just got to struggle it out and figure it out the rest of your life? Or was there more to salvation, and when your eyes are open to that reality, and when you actually look into the scriptures, the clarity of the word, and you have understanding, it's like James says, we're a man who looks in a mirror, we see ourselves as we are. We see who we're created to be. Then we, when we walk away from that mirror, we forget who we are. See, that's oftentimes what happens. We get a glimpse of who we're created to be in Christ. Then when we step away, we forget. You know, I was in, recently in a conversation with somebody in Kansas City that's counseling a young girl that has just had great depth and history in the Lord and now is involved with an unsaved young man in living in promiscuity. And, you know, when we were discussing this girl that needs counseling and healing, I was saying to this, this woman that's mentoring her, I said, I have come to the conclusion, and it's actually, if you study the Hebrew and the Greek, this is not a far-off conclusion. <laughs> I said, I've come to the conclusion, sin is insanity. It is. It's insanity. And why I say that is it may appeal to our flesh and it may satisfy us in a moment, but the, the, the wages of sin is death. That if you ever were sitting down logically, we'll just use the example, let's use the example of adultery because it's a, a sin where most of us can look at it from afar and assess it. Let's look at the sin of adultery. If you were to sit down and weigh out the pros and the cons of committing that sin, if you seriously, aside from momentary gratification, forget lust, forget the devil, forget all of that. If you were sit, to sit out and weigh it all out, the devastation on your marriage, the devastation on your children, the long-term effects of all of it, nobody in their right mind would choose that. Because if you were thinking clearly, you would think beyond the moment. It's insanity. I mean, I sit with girls. I've mentored young women that I literally watched them spiral into places of doubt and despair and shame and confusion, all for a sexual relationship with a man. I watched the vice come upon them, absolutely clouding and deceiving them, and they walk away from the Lord for sexual gratification. I mean, when you stand back and you assess it and you can see it from the outside, you can look at somebody and think, you are insane. You've lost your marbles. I mean, it's no different. Let's just use very down-to-earth. I'm a mom. For me, toward my son, I consider anger a sin. That's a sin. For me to be angry toward my son and to be harsh toward him and crush his spirit. That's a sin. So in all honesty, even if in the sin, let's just say, of anger or frustration, which really would be rooted in selfishness, if things aren't going my way and he's not conforming to my little, you're not being convenient, you're four and you're not convenient. <laughs> you know, all of those things. But honestly, even in the place of anger, if you step back out of the circumstance and you really just assess it and weigh it and think it through beyond your emotion, you realize you're kind of like, it is so silly to be frustrated and angry. Why would I ever discipline harshly? Or why would I, you know, you get, you get that broader perspective and that understanding. So I think all of us would agree in this place. We probably, if I said to you, do you believe the word of God? 
Do you believe the word of God is true? Do you apply the principles of the word to your life? Where this actually comes into play is that we all agree that our past is forgiven. But what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to read to you a couple of scripture verses. I'll give you the references so you can read them, meditate upon them at your home. But I'm going to read these passages of scripture. And I want, you, I want to ask you to even weigh in your heart if you believe these to be true, not for Christianity, but for your individual life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things, I want to repeat again, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So here in 2 Corinthians, we have to apply this truth to our life that all things become new. All things become new. Romans 6, 6 through 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's saying he who has died. He's saying us individuals that have died. I'm going to repeat this passage of scripture to you. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. So not just necessarily that you, because of his crucifixion, you are forgiven. But because of his crucifixion, your old man was crucified with him. I mean, is there a place where mentally we kind of go, I don't know if, I, I think my old man is still very well alive and well, kicking. He's thriving. He's, he's beefy. <laughs> Most of us feel that way. We feel like we are very well acquainted and familiar with our old man. So is the word of God true or is it not? We're not only forgiven of our sins, but our old man was crucified with him. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, which Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things above. Remember our line? Above the line, the eternal. For you died, again, here we find this, you died. For you died. What died? What died? For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Over and over, he's emphasizing that literally, it's not that Jesus died on the cross to cover your sin, that it covers you, and now you just have to kind of wrestle through. He's literally saying, your old man died with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here he says it again. You are crucified with Christ. That that nature, that sin nature literally was, and we're going to look at this more in depth as we move forward. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. We died together with Christ, our sin nature. 
And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, for he made him to know no sin, to, to know no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. I actually gave you this one. Uh, Romans 6, 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we, here we, here's this phrase one more time. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Over and over again, we're finding this trumpeted throughout the word of God, that we were baptized in his death, that we were crucified with him. This word baptized, when I say the word baptized, most of you just got the mental image of someone dunking you in the water. Yeah, it's baptized, like my old man went under, you know that. But literally the word in the Greek, the, the baptized means you were immersed in Christ. You were immersed in Christ. You were, and so then when it goes on to say, you were immersed in his death. So therefore, when he died, your old man and your sin nature died. And if this, for you, if you're thinking, I cannot reconcile my mind because my sin nature is very well alive. I understand that. And I know that for many of you, you're actually thinking, because even uh, Paul, where he talks about it, the question then becomes, he says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. What Paul is literally saying here is he is saying that with salvation, your sin nature died. Remind you, I was reminding you even as, as far as James, where it says that when we look at the mirror, when we look into the mirror, seeing who we are, oftentimes what happens is, is we get a glimpse and an understanding, and then we step away and we forget. But basically what he's saying over and over here is that if you're sinning, it's because sin is in your members, it, it, meaning the members of your body that you are availing and you are submitting. But over and over, he is addressing the issue of our sin nature in our spirit. See, there is a difference between our inward man and our spirit and what wars against us outwardly and temptation. You are in the flesh. You have a body. Until the day that you die, you will be in a physical body. So is there, there is going to be opportunity for your fleshly nature to be aroused and to be awakened and to be tempted. That is a very real reality. But what he is over throughout all of these eight passages of scripture, what he is saying is that when you were saved, that literally at that moment, it wasn't just your past sins that were washed and cleansed. What he's doing is he's delivering you from the stronghold of sin, that he's delivered you from the sin nature. Over and over again, we find throughout these passages of scripture is that when he died, we died and we were buried with him. Even this word. And I, I, I want to encourage for every person in the room that's sitting and saying, okay, that might be what the word of God says, but experientially, that is not my experience. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because there's probably most, all of us in this place would say, that is not my experience. But number one, this is what I want to say to you. It, the very real reality may be that it's not our experience. 
because it's well, number one, we have not received that as truth. So number one, when we, when we haven't received it as truth, we have an expectation. But number two, Paul talks very clearly about being under the law. That when we're under the law, it literally causes us to live. I'll use this example to you. Everything that we're talking about right now, as far as us being crucified with Christ, and that our old man is dead and buried, and that we are dead with him, and that we've been raised to life, all of that, there's two very contrasting differences here. Number one is if we believe this is our reality, guess what? We are no longer the focus of our life. He becomes the focus. Because we've realized we've been, we've been delivered from that place and that vice of being consumed with self. The difference is, is that when he becomes the focus, we actually find greater communion, greater fellowship with him, greater liberty in that place, and we walk according to the spirit. How many times does Paul says, walk according to the spirit and not after the flesh? Walk according. What he's saying is walk according to the spiritual reality that you have been made one with Christ Jesus. And when you accept and you embrace that reality, you will walk according to that. But as long as we see ourselves as I'm forever in a vice, I've been left unto myself, I have to work, wrestle, strive my way out of it, your focus is forever upon yourself. See, we're not God-centered Our salvation isn't even Christ-centered if we think that somehow it is our job and our duty to get it right or to get his approval. But when we see ourselves according to the lens of just even one of these passages of scripture, we see ourselves differently. We see our identity differently, and then it actually, it releases us to walk differently. This is actually what uh, Watchman Nee says. At the beginning of Christian life, we are concerned with our doing and not with our being. We are distressed more by what we have done than by what we are. Knowing who we are in Christ We think that if only we could rectify certain things, that we could be good Christians. Therefore, we set out to change our actions. I mean, is that what Christianity has been reduced to for us? Behavior modification? I mean, if that's the reality of the gospel that we are living out, it's a humanistic gospel. Because it's limited to our own strength and our own ability as much desire as we have, is as much as we can attain, all of those things. We try to please the Lord, but we find that something within us does not want to please him. And the more we try to rectify matters externally, the more we realize how deep-seated the problem really is. And what he's actually directing it back to is that it's an internal issue. The internal issue is coming to the understanding of our sonship, our identity before Christ Jesus. How many of you guys are familiar with um, the passage of uh, Scripture in Galatians 3, 1 through 4? It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed amongst you as crucified? Verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of law 
or by hearing by faith. He's saying, did you receive salvation by something that you did, by something that you earned? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by your own flesh? Have you suffered many things in vain? If, in, if indeed it was in vain. What he's saying is you have begun in the spirit that your salvation was supernatural. It was a supernatural exchange. You are not now going to be able to even walk out salvation in the natural. It still needs to continue to be the supernatural exchange of the identity of Christ. It says Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, oftentimes we think that Christ is out there. Like when the worship team starts, Christ is out there and I need to like get him on me. Like I got to get him on me because I am so carnal and so fleshly. When you start getting the understanding, it's Christ in you is the hope of glory. Number one, it's the hope of you experiencing the glory of God because it's the indwelling Christ. But two, you literally have become the hope of glory, the manifestation of the glory of God upon the earth. Us weak earthen vessels. If we start seeing ourselves that way and perceiving ourselves that way, we live very differently. We align with the word of God and the wisdom of God. It's Christ in you, not Christ in Daryl, not Christ in Billy Graham. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The indwelling Christ. And see, this is the issue is over and over we see throughout the word is we have externalized salvation. That it's something happening out there, that it's the blood of Jesus appropriated to me without understanding the internal reality of who our identity before Christ Jesus, who we are before him, that he has called us sons and daughters. All of these passages of scriptures, which I hope you have the, you have the references that I gave to you. I'm going to go over them one more time because you should study them. You should meditate upon them. You should... Uh, Romans 6.13, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. I'm actually very quickly going to close out here. Romans chapter 6, the entire chapter is wonderful. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. We were united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, 
he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. I want us to close out with this point, but the understanding of it's Christ who lives in us. It is the Christ, the reality of Christ within us is that as we're able to fellowship with the indwelling Christ, it literally is what gives us the strength. It's what gives us the clarity. It's what gives us the understanding to be able to walk free from sin. And really, just as we started out this message with the understanding that above the line is what is eternal, it is what is spiritual, and below the line is what is natural and temporal and it's seen with the eye. It's we continually have to make the choice if we are going to judge our own life, our own circumstance, our own reality, and our own identity below the line in the realm of the natural, in the realm of what we see and what we feel, or whether we're going to judge it above the line in the realm of the supernatural, in the realm of the spiritual, that either Romans 6 is true or it is not. That we who, through salvation, we began in the spirit, we are never going to be able to walk out or even fulfill Christianity and what is, the Lord calls us to in the place of our flesh and in the place of our own struggle. We'll forever be left frustrated and discontent. But when we begin to understand the indwelling Christ, when we begin to understand that our, we were crucified with him, that our, our sin nature no longer lives. And if you feel as though it's alive, it's only because you've given it permission and access and you have come into agreement with that belief system. I'm not saying that overnight sin just goes away. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is I, I, I firmly believe that as we look through the word of God, it's as we are, it, Paul says this, it's as re, we are renewed in the spirit of our mind. We are washed by the water of the word. And the more we come into agreement with what he has said, what he has promised, what salvation truly is, I'm going to say this to you. In some ways, it would be a very, very unkind and unloving God to invite us into a salvation that then we're just kind of living tormented the rest of our life never able to fulfill or to accomplish or feel as though we are living in communion with him. So that whole presentation of kind of you're saved and now you get to work it out, figure it out, strive your way to perfection somehow. It's half the gospel without understanding of what we are saved into and the invitation that has been given to us that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory that it's the indwelling Christ, that he has made his home, and that from the place of communion, from the place of relationship, from the place of resting in the finished work of the cross, that you are able to overcome your sin nature, that you are able to see victory over those things that would seek to be a vice and a snare. Let's stand to our feet. Lord, we ask today, Father, that 
any place, Father, that even in our pursuit of you, Father, that we have been focused upon self, Father, upon our own ability, Lord, upon our own even desires for more of you, Lord, focused upon our own shortcomings, focused upon who we desire to be and what we hope to be. But, Lord, we have felt ill-equipped and without strength to to walk in the way that you have intended and created us for. God, we ask today, Father, that even as we have looked into your word and gone through these passages of scripture, God, as your word clearly articulates and displays, Father, that with salvation, with the cross, that our sin nature died together with Christ. That we were crucified with Christ and it is no longer us who lives but it is Christ who lives through us. God, I ask, Lord, that for any of us in this place, that, Lord, we don't feel like that is our reality or our experience, Christ living through us. We have felt it more reality that our old man has lived through us. God, we say that today we avail ourselves to your truth. We avail ourselves to the wisdom of your word. And God, we do ask, Father, that we would be renewed in the, the spirit of our mind. God, that you would wash away, Lord, every concept of religiosity and striving. God, we even ask that right now, Father, that you would, Lord, upon individual hearts, that you would wash away shame. God, that you would wash away, Lord, every place that Christianity has felt like a heavy yoke and a burden that cannot be accomplished and fulfilled. Lord, we willingly and with joy say, Father, that it never can be fulfilled in the flesh. It can never be fulfilled by our own striving and our own good works and by trying harder. But God, we thank you for the promise of your word that Christ in us, the hope of glory, that as we come to a greater understanding, as we come to a greater even embracing of the indwelling Christ, that that is where we find liberty, that is where we find freedom, that is where we find true grace. From the place of relationship with you, So God, we ask today, Father, that our identity would be rooted and grounded in the finished work of the cross. God, we say, Father, deliver us from self-focused Christianity and even Christianity that is external, Lord, that our identity is based upon status and wages and position that our identity is based upon performance and how we're, how we're doing it and how we're measuring up. God, we say that all of those things, Lord, that they are shaky and they are unstable, that they are ever-changing, but you are the God who never changes. So we thank you, Father, that our identity would be rooted and grounded in who you are, 
and who you are through us and in us. And we thank you for the wisdom of your word. If there's anybody that would like prayer today, just make sure that you grab one of our team members and don't leave without prayer. But we love you guys. Bless you, and we will see you next week. Mwah. Remember, to, uh, next Sunday, we'll be in the George Walker.